I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm talking to Dr. Sergio Pashka. Dr. Pashka is the Kenneth T. Norris Jr. Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, as well as the director of the Stanford Brain Organogenesis Program and his lab studies human brain development. In particular, they are trying to understand the rules that govern the assembly of the human brain and the molecular mechanisms that lead to neuropsychiatric disease. To do this, his lab has pioneered and applied neural organoid and assembloid technologies, which allow them to make discoveries in both basic and clinical neuroscience. Basically, they've developed tools that allow them to take adult cells from a human being, turn those into pluripotent stem cells, the same types of cells that are present during very, very early phases of development, and then they can guide those cells to become things like neurons. And then those neurons can basically grow and develop in a Petri dish in a way that can allow scientists to study development. So there's basically clumps of cells that come to resemble structures of the brain and come to develop somewhat like the brain actually develops in in real life in living, breathing animals in a Petri dish. And so we discussed all things human brain development. We talked about the technical and ethical limitations of understanding understanding human brain development because you can't actually go in and physically directly study the human brain as it's developing. We talked about what makes the human brain different from the brains of many other creatures, many other types of animals. We talked about what scientists have learned about human brain development using some of these technologies over the years. And we talked about some recent research that his lab published that has to do with these things called organoids and assembloids, basically these uh, clumps of neurons that you can make form and start to develop in a Petri dish that somewhat resemble the development, the natural development of the human brain in vivo. And so we talked about how those experiments work, how they are able to to actually do them, and what they start to teach us about human brain development. So if you're interested in the brain and neuropsychiatric disease and what can go wrong during the process of development to produce a brain that actually has a given neuropsychiatric disease, this will be a really interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you are listening or watching this episode. Also remember to sign up for my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll get an email every week with updates on who my upcoming guests and topics of discussion are, other interesting content and research I'm reading about to learn more about the subjects I cover on the show, and more. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Sergio Pashkov. that you do? Uh, I'm a professor at Stanford University. I'm a neuroscientist, a physician by training. And uh, my interest is in uh, understanding the rules that underlie the development of the human brain and how disorders of the human brain arise. And so what is, um, what's the significance of actually studying brain development in the sense of like, you know, there's so much that we don't know even about the adult brain, um, what's the significance of studying how it develops? Why not just focus on studying the the fully mature brain? Now, well, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, to some extent, the majority of uh, disorders of the human brain are disorders of development. Hmm. And these days we're finding that even some classic neurodegenerative disorders that have a late onset uh, have a, a much earlier neurodevelopmental uh, start. Um, but even classic disorders such as schizophrenia, um, uh, you know, we now know that the disease starts very early in development. So it, it, it's very clear that understanding how the human brain builds itself um, and how it does, of course, in the context of the genes that are associated with, with disorders, it's quite important to understand the pathophysiology of these conditions. And um, you know, the reality is that most of what we know about the human brain comes from studying rodents. Um, and it comes at no surprise, I guess, to anybody that the human brain has a number of uh, interesting features. Um, uh, you know, we don't have to call them unique features, but it has a number of interesting features when compared to rodents. So there's always obviously a debate, um, you know, to what extent, you know, modeling the human brain or studying the actual human brain uh, is important to understand some of these conditions. I see. So, so actually, a very large percentage of brain disorders that, where the symptoms start in adulthood, we actually have learned that the problems are, you know, going wrong earlier in development, even though we don't really see them with the naked eye until much later. Absolutely, and you know, especially when we're talking about disorders that are genetic. I mean, the genetic mutation is there from the beginning. Think of ALS or, um, you know, think of Huntington disease. Uh, and certainly, you know, cellular pathophysiology starts much, much earlier before the, the clinical onset. Um, and in fact, there is evidence just in the last few years that even in the case of Huntington disease, which is a severe neurodegenerative disorders that usually starts in the third or the fourth decade, that the mutated protein actually plays an early role in development very early on. Now, is that important to cause Huntington disease? We still don't know, but it's clear that it causes defect, defects already early in uh, development. And of course, when it comes to schizophrenia, um, uh, you know, many of the genes that are associated with schizophrenia are known to have roles in brain development very early on. Uh, there are risk factors for schizophrenia that are associated with pregnancy. 
Um, and so there are a number of genetic, epidemiological, uh, you know, pathological studies that pinpoint that most of these disorders um, are starting very early on in development. And so you mentioned how a lot of what we know about human brain development actually comes from studies in rodents. And even though rodents and humans are two different animals and there's many differences between them, uh, a lot of that probably has to do with the technical and practical and ethical limitations around actually literally studying the developing primate brain. Can you talk a little bit about some of the major technological advancements from the last few years or decades that have allowed scientists to actually study the development of human or primate neurons developing? Yeah. Well, this is the what I like to sometimes call the uh, unbearable problem of the inaccessibility of the human brain, um, you know, which is you know, for a very obvious reason. You know, we not only that we cannot go to patients and directly, uh, um, you know, measure electrical activity in their neurons, uh, but we also don't have access to the human brain for most of its development. Right. And I'm, I'm talking like the first few years of life when the human brain still continues to develop. So we know actually very little about uh, most processes in human brain development. And just think it's not just about how the cells are made, uh, but how the cells migrate in the nervous system, how they form connections. And in humans and in, in many primates, of course, why this process takes such a long time. So just think about myelination. Right? There is evidence that in humans, myelination ends in the third decade. Right. So uh, and especially in frontal areas, it, it almost seems as this, you know, ability of the human brain to stay plastic, um, you know, is one of the unique features uh, uh, of, of our brains just to stay plastic and, and open to uh, change for much, much longer. Um, and so the question is, obviously, how are we going to understand uh, this processes in a systematic way so that we can ultimately understand the biology of these conditions? And. Uh, you know, it's always, you know, an issue and it's always been frustrating to see how most of the other branches of medicine have easy access to their organ of interest, <laughs> right? And I think the classic example is, of course, oncology, where, um, you know, you want to remove the tumor anyway. And so you can bring it to the lab or you can do a biopsy. And with the advent of molecular biology, we've really seen a revolution in oncology over the last few decades where we've gone from knowing very little about like what causes cancer to understanding some of the genes, understanding the molecular biology, and today actually having cures, definitive cures for many forms of cancer. Of course, there's still a lot of work to be done, but you know, 40, 50 years ago, this was like unconceivable. And the reason why this happened is because of course, molecular biology was discovered, uh, but also at the same time, we had access to the tissue of interest. And so that, that's why, you know, I, I, I often like to joke that I suffer from an oncology envy syndrome because, you know, when I was going through medical school, it was so frustrating just to see how, you know, fast and the advances were in oncology and just how far we, we are and we still are in psychiatry, where to a large extent, we still define psychiatric disorders behaviorally. We have no biomarkers or very few biomarkers. And none of them today in the clinic, none of them are necessary for diagnosing a patient. You don't need a biomarker. All you need is to observe the behavior and put it in a context of a series of criteria that have been developed over the years. Um, and of course, that's problematic, right? Because brain disorders are ultimately disorders, uh, biological disorders. And we want to know exactly what causes them in order to treat them. 
And so, so what are some of the tools that have been developed and that are being used now to understand things like primate and human brain development in the lab? In particular, um, one thing I'm interested to hear you talk about is the role of induced pluripotent stem cells. So, I mean, the some of the ways in which we could access, um, you know, brain tissue or the, you know, the main way in which we could access the brain tissue, you know, let's say 13, 14 years ago was to use postmortem tissue, right? Which is, which is still one of the ways in which, uh, you know, this is done. Of course, the problem with that is we don't have that much tissue. You know, you'll be surprised by, although there are like banks of uh, brain tissue from patients with autism and although we're talking about a disease that it's almost 2% of the population, we actually have a remarkably low number of brains available to study. And of course, even if we were to have more, that brain tissue is not functional. So it's like very difficult, right, to uh, study, you know, what is wrong with those cells or what are the circuits that are affected, what are the molecules. And it's also very challenging to disentangle the history of the disease from the actual core pathophysiological process. Most of these patients, and again, I'm, I keep giving examples about autism because that remains my main uh, clinical and scientific expertise, but you know, essentially for patients with autism, I mean, many of these patients have epilepsy. So they'll take anti-epileptic drugs for a very long time. They'll have seizures. Mm. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll take a number of medications over the years. And so it's very difficult to disentangle the, you know, the effects of those drugs or, or interventions, clinical interventions, and on the other hand, the actual pathophysiological process. Um, and so that's why, you know, the discovery of cell reprogramming, uh, which, uh, you know, happened about 15 years ago, um, it was, in my opinion, so revolutionary. And I was like still doing my clinical training where Yamanaka described um, these, uh, you know, incredible ability of taking somatic cells, any somatic cells, fibroblast, blood cells, and being able with a trick um, to, you know, with the genetic trick to push them back in time to look like pluripotent stem cells. And therefore, they were named induced pluripotent stem cells or iPS cells. Um, and of course, in the beginning, that was just remarkable and unbelievable to, to some extent. But over the years, uh, it was shown clearly that this is a robust process that you can take any cell and reprogram it. And of course, the promise of that is that once you make stem cells from any individual, if you were to have the tools to guide those cells, you could start making uh, uh, you could start making neurons from patients. And that's essentially what I decided to do very soon after Yamanaka made that discovery and uh, came to Stanford as a postdoctoral fellow uh, trying to make um, you know some of the first neurons from patients uh, in a dish. So, so induced pluripotent stem cells, you take a cell from an adult individual, it could be a human being, and you're saying that no matter what type of cell it is, it could be a brain cell, it could be a liver cell, it could be anything in principle, you can use molecular tricks in the lab to turn it back into a stem cell so that it's then able to uh, sort of develop forward again. Exactly. I mean, you, you, you know, of course, in theory, you can take any cell, but it should be a cell that is still capable of dividing. So it would be very difficult with the neuron to do that because, you know, the cell will have to undergo a, a number of, of, of cell cycles to really be reprogrammed. Um, not that it would be impossible, but in general. Um, and so skin cells were the first ones to be reprogrammed because it's easy to take a skin biopsy um, or some some cells in the blood that have a nucleus. So it would be very difficult to do like red blood cells, right? So reprogramming, but you can take white blood cells and reprogram those. But yes, exactly. In principle, you could take almost any somatic cell that you have and push them back in time 
by just briefly expressing a number of genes associated with pluripotency. And almost through, almost like, you know, cellular alchemy, the cells will go back in time and, uh, you know, have the features of a pluripotent stem cell, which means that they can self-renew, so they can divide and make the same cell over and over again. And secondly, they have the ability to turn into any of the three major cell lineages. So endoderm, mesoderm, uh, ectoderm. And so if you create induced pluripotent stem cells, let's say you take a skin cell from someone who has some kind of skin disease that they're born with, and you turn the cell into an induced pluripotent stem cell, and then you allow it to divide and turn back into skin cells in a Petri dish in the lab, will it recapitulate the disease features from the person that you got the cells from originally? So that was the promise in, in the beginning when this technology was developed. And um, certainly there was a lot of skepticism. I mean, I still vividly remember the brutal rejections that I was getting to almost every single postdoctoral fellowship that I applied for at that time where, you know, most reviewers thought that first of all, it would be like technically difficult. And even if it was to work, um, then you won't recapitulate the pathophysiology of the disease that the cells were just kind of like on, you know, on their way to reprogramming and then on their way to differentiating and becoming a neurons, they'll lose some of the, you know, I guess like features of disease. And, um, and, and certainly with the example of the first neurons that we've made, we showed that that was like not actually the case. Um, and, you know, we can go certainly into details, but we focus on a, initially on a disease um, where the mutation was in a calcium channel that is present in excitable cell, excitable cells. So, you know, unless you were to have heart tissue or brain tissue from this patient, you wouldn't be able to study the, the you know, the disease itself. Uh, and so it, it was, you know, because this channel is simply not expressed. And so you said, so, so you have worked with neurons, human neurons that are created from induced pluripotent stem cells. What, can you describe the basic process there? You sort of hinted at it, but what, how does that actually work? And when you get the neurons, how, how are you then able to study them in the lab? Like what types of experiments can you do? So the methods have evolved a lot over the past 13 years uh, since we've, you know, we've been doing this and certainly they're more sophisticated today. And I'm, you know, we're certainly going to that discussion as well, but in the beginning um, it, it was relatively straightforward. It was known for a very long time that if you have a pluripotent stem cell, an embryonic stem cell, uh, the, you know, and you let them differentiate, meaning that you remove some of the factors that you keep in the dish to keep the cells pluripotent. If you just remove them, the cells will naturally prefer to go towards ectoderm. And so towards making, you know, neuroectoderm and, you know, part of the nervous system and more specifically a cortex. And so in the beginning, the methods that we've had, you know, 2009 were quite primitive. We would get this iPS cells from patients uh, through a very painful process at that time. Reprogramming was quite difficult and tedious and inefficient. And then take those induced pluripotent stem cells and essentially remove the factors that keep them pluripotent and just hope that they will kind of like make neurons. Uh, soon after, the methods became slightly more sophisticated and certain signaling pathways were shown to be very important for guiding that differentiation. So for instance, if you block this MAT pathway uh, from two sides, you can get almost 100% ectodermal cells. And so, you know, it's essentially there was work done in 
learning how to guide the cells to go, go towards a certain phase. And in the beginning, the cells were essentially just sitting on a flat surface, right? So you just like have a dish, but you know, with a cover slip and a glass cover slip and the cells will be there. You'll see the neurons and you'll be able actually to study them. First of all, look, do they look like neuron? Do they have the morphology of a neuron? Um, and then starting to look at functional properties of those cells. Like, do they have calcium signals? Uh, do you know, if you patch them, if you put an electrode inside, then you listen to their electrical properties. Do they, you know, uh, do, do they, do they, uh, are they really neuronal like, um, and, uh, so th those were the ways in which we can, we, we were testing them in the beginning and that was very useful. I mean, it, it was, it was good enough for us to discover some fundamental, uh, um, you know, to, well, I guess to some extent to validate that this method works. And the way we validated in the beginning was we focused on this disease, this rare form of autism and epilepsy called Timothy syndrome. It's very, very rare, but the mutation is in a calcium channel. And this is a voltage-gated calcium channel. And as the name implies, this is let's calcium in the neuron when the voltage of the cells changes. So when the neuron receives some sort of input, the calcium channel will sense that, open and let calcium in. And the mutation was a gain of function mutation in the sense that it would let the calcium channel stay open for slightly longer. That was the prediction. But of course, nobody knew because nobody ever looked in either heart cells or neurons from this patient. So what we did is we made neurons from patients with Timothy syndrome. In the beginning, we had two patients. We flew them here to Stanford. They're very few worldwide, by the way. They're about like 50 or so. Uh, we flew them here to Stanford, got their skin cells, uh, generated iPS cells, and then we made neurons. And then the first uh, you know, test that we did was to look at calcium dynamic inside the cells. And I still remember the day um, you know, very vividly when I did that experiment, which summer of 2009, where we literally put this, some of this Timothy syndrome neurons um, and we depolarize them and look at calcium rise. And you can literally see how calcium goes up in a control cell and it goes down. And then in patient cells, it went up, but then it took way, way longer to come down, which was, you know, was a wow and a wow moment for us, um, showing that, look, you can take the cells from patients make cells that are inaccessible and see a phenotype that to some extent you would expect, but it was like, you know, unbelievable to be able to do that in human cells. Um, I, and again, that, that, so, so you have this rare disease, a rare form of autism. It's got a genetic basis. There's something, you know, that there's something wrong with a particular type of calcium channel, but you could never confirm exactly what was wrong because there was no way to go look. So what you guys did was literally fly in, humans with Timothy syndrome, took some of their skin cells, turned them into stem cells, turned the stem cells into neurons. And then you could actually measure what was going on with these calcium channels and, and actually see exactly what was wrong. Exactly. That's exactly, that's exactly what we did. And we started using it for multiple other disorders very quickly, this technology, but we started to realize that there were some limitations. And, and one of the main limitations was just like, simply how long it takes for the human brain to develop. So just, just, just think about it. If you were to think about making the cerebral cortex, the outer layer of the brain, 
the one where cognition resides, I guess like most of our, we associated with like most of what makes us human. But, you know, if you were to look at like how long it takes to build, to make all the neurons in the cortex of a rat, you realize it just takes about a week, you know, maybe seven days in mice, 11 days in rats or something like this. Now, if you were to look in humans, in order to make all the neurons that we're, we have in the cortex, you need 146 days, 150, let's say, right? That's a very, very long time. We're talking, you know, almost 20 times uh, longer over a period to do it. And we realized very quickly that we were just simply not able to keep the cells in a dish to get to those stages, you know, because you make the cells at the bottom of a dish and you keep them there for a week or for two, for five, for six, for seven. But at one point, they peel off, they come off of the 10 centimeter dish. And, you know, through heroic effort, you could try to replay them, everything else, but neurons are not happy when you just move them between plates. So no matter what we did, usually by the time they would reach hundred days, the neurons would be dead. So they would not even finish making all the cells in the cortex. And that's just the beginning of studying human brain development, you know, because then cells start to make astrocytes, glial cells, which are also important for disease. They start to migrate, they start to make connections. So it's just clear that we're just opening a window into the early stage of development. But it sounds like, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you have this key limitation, which is you can't have these developing neurons in a dish for very long, for more than like 100 days, because right. uh, they just, they're unhappy and you can't culture them oh, in a happy. dish. But within that time that you can study them, it does sound like they start to form structures that are not unlike what they actually do in in actual yeah, development. Well, they don't have much, you know, they, they don't have much cytoarchitecture. You know, they, they, they you know, the progenitors will start to organize almost like in a ventricular like zone, but then afterwards there's not enough structure for them to organize. And they're again, they're at the bottom of a dish, they're on a flat surface, which is obviously not what the brain is. And so then um, you know, more than 10 years ago now, you know, sometimes around 2011 or so, uh, came up with a, you know, very simple idea. I thought, oh, why are we even keeping them, you know, attached to these dishes? Um, why don't we just simply move them uh, in another play where they can attach, where they just be floating? So, you know, I bought this cell culture dishes, which are coated so that cells don't sit down. You know, most of the plates that we use in a lab, or most of the Petri dishes that we use are coated so the cells attach to them. But you can actually buy cell culture dishes that have a substance that prevents them from attaching. And so essentially just use those and aggregated the cells. So make tiny, you know, spherical balls of cells and just put them onto those plates. And to be honest, I thought they're just gonna, I thought we're gonna keep them for a week or two and then they're going to disintegrate. Like the balls of cells will like kind of like grow. And at one point, they'll just like break down. And the surprise was that it was not happening. In fact, they were very stable like that. They grew up to three to four millimeters in size. So you can literally see them by eye. And then you could keep them. And now we know we can essentially keep the cells indefinitely. You know, we've kept the longest cultures that have ever been reported going, you know, 800, 900 days uh, in a dish. So several years, but you could go for even longer than that in principle. There's no limit to how long you can keep them. And uh, we call those initial preparations spheroids because they're spherical. But as you know, there are multiple efforts into building three-dimensional cultures across multiple fields, some with using extracellular matrices, some with like, you know, plating and replating the cells, you know, slowly uh, the sculptures were known as organized because they resemble organs. 
again, not the most, you know, fortunate name, I would say, uh, because it, it, it implies that we're making an actual organ, but, you know, that's the term that is used today. So these cultures were, are collectively known now as neural organoids or brain organoids. I see. So, and, so these these are neurons that you're culturing in a dish, and they're essentially just sort of floating, suspended in liquid. Exactly. So they're they're literally floating. They're bowls of cells that have, you know, maybe one to two million cells. And but the key aspect of it is that they're developing. They're self organizing. They're not just like cells that you aggregate, right? You take the stem cells in the beginning, you guide them just slightly, and then you let them do their job. And essentially, you'll have you know, a first wave of progenitors, those will generate other progenitors, those progenitors will start making neurons. At one point, the progenitors will start making glial cells. And so there's development that happens in the dish. And now we could actually keep them for 150, 200 days. And when we looked inside, we realized actually corticogenesis or the generation of the cerebral cortex does continue. And in fact, what we've discovered, you know, over the past five, six years is that Quite surprisingly, I, I would say that uh, it, it seems that the cells have a way of keeping tr- of, of tracking time, of 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 knowing where they are in development. So uh, you know, <laughs> the experiments go something like this: you 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 take these cultures and you keep them for let's say eight hundred days or six hundred days, and you keep collecting cells, you know, organoids at multiple time points, and then you ask, well, what do they resemble the most in human brain development? What stage? And if you take them in the beginning, in the first couple of hundred days, it's very clear that they resemble the first trimester, second trimester, human brain. But then something happens. And when they reach nine to 10 months of keeping them in a dish, so kind of like the time of birth, they transition to a postnatal signature on their own. Of course, there's no birth, not that birth would mean anything. It's just that it tells us that they progress at a certain pace that is similar to the pace in vivo that almost, if you want to say, you know, if you want to call it, they have a, there's a, a clock, a brain clock that keeps track of time in the cells. And even very canonical switches that people have discovered, like people have, it's classic examples in neuroscience that there are NMDA receptors that have certain units before birth and certain units after birth. And it was unclear whether those are caused by activity by birth itself. But if you look in a dish, they will transition and they will transition around nine to 10 months uh, in a dish as well, which tells us that they're part of some sort of intrinsic developmental time tracking molecular machinery uh, that um, uh, tells the cells exactly where they are in time. And of course, nobody knows what the molecular basis for that clock is. I see. So, so we know that when you go from prenatal development to postnatal development, so a human being is born uh, comes out of the womb, and there are changes in the brain that happen around that time. And one 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 idea would be, well, those changes are driven by the fact that now the baby's eyes are open, and there's information going in through sure. the eyeballs, and you know there's sound, and there's all these experience dependent components to now being outside the womb in the external world. What you're saying is that you see certain molecular changes in things like NMDA receptors in the brain, even in these neurons that are just floating in the dish. Well, there is a a fundamental program of maturation that is kept. Not every aspect of maturation is recapitulated in addition. In fact, that prompted the experiments that we've been doing and been publishing a few months ago uh, of trying to do some of these experiments in an in vivo setting, precisely because some features are missing. 
And of course, we can talk about that as well. But there is a basic fundamental program. The cells will know what to generate and when. And this is species specific because chimp cells, if you take chimp iPS cells and you do exactly the same experiment, they'll finish corticogenesis much faster. Or my cells, they'll finish it much faster. So this is a species intrinsic uh, clock that you know, ma maintains the pace of development. But then, of course, and, and for us, of course, birth doesn't mean that much, right? I mean, certainly there are like some dramatic events that the brain, the, the human brain has to deal with, right? Like in terms of oxygen and so on and so forth uh, at birth. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, if you think about it, it's, it's you know, our birth is premature, right? And it's uh, dictated to a large extent by the size of our, uh, of our head. Um, and so that's why humans, when they're born, they're incapable of walking. We're not yet myelinated. In fact, we now know that even interneurons continue to migrate for about a couple of years after we're born. So it's not like development is done. Uh, and, um, and so I, I think it's worth keeping in mind that not that there's necessarily something special just about birth. There, there is, but it's not just birth. It is just the timing of development that the cells will be able to just like track over time. Mm -hmm. And so th this is an intrinsic thing. So that means it's largely determined by genetic factors? By, by some genetic programs. Yes, absolutely. And how much, how hard do you guys have to work to mimic the environment? So when you're growing these organoids in a culture, do you have to work very hard to mimic the in utero environment in terms of all of the molecules and stuff floating around? Well, I mean, so the way we do it is, um, you know, it depends a little bit on the brain region that you're making. Of course, we put them in cell culture media that provide some of the nutrients that the cells have. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done in improving uh, some of these medias. But one of the things that we do have to do is we have to provide guidance to make very specific brain regions, uh, meaning, uh, meaning that you can essentially... Uh, uh, you know, if you want to make a thalamus or if you want to make a spinal cord, you have to provide very specific growth factors and molecules. And that, that we add very um, early in development that we spend a lot of time uh, figuring that out. And, um, uh, but, you know, other than that, you know, we don't do that much. We don't provide a scaffold for the cells. We don't, um, you know, we, we don't keep coming and instructing them we just let them develop. And I think that's the beauty of development, right? I mean, the human brain builds itself to a large extent. And so uh, once you provide some conditions for for the from brain development to take place, it will take place within those constraints, of course. And just to make it clear, the cultures that we make resemble specific regions of the nervous system. So they can resemble the striatum or the cortex. They're not miniature versions of the entire brain. Um, which is, you know, a, a certainly a very important nuance, especially when it comes to misunderstanding what is being done. Um, so, you know, this is obviously, you know, we mentioned how a lot of what we know about human brain development comes from studying rodents, but obviously we can never understand everything by doing that because we're just different from rodents. Our development takes longer, et cetera, et cetera. Our brains have very different features that that end up developing what are some of the major anatomical and cellular level ways that the human brain differs from rodents and non-human primates sure i mean there there are many features that uh, have been described over time of course one of them is even just simply the timing of development it takes much longer to make a a, a brain of a primate than to make one of a rodent for instance um, there are different types of progenitors 
Um, and the proportions are very different. So there are types of progenitors that are overrepresented in the primate brain. They're presumably responsible for the many neurons that we have in our, and the expanded cortex that we have. Um, there are differences also in the timing of the formation of synapses. Uh, and even, you know, uh, you know, observations about differences in the number of synapses uh, per cells. But again, it is still very early days, truly understanding at the molecular cell level, what are the differences? I mean, just in the last five years or so, uh, we've been able to have atlases of the human brain at single cell level, uh, right? So many of these comparisons uh, up to this point were done by morphological analysis, right? By essentially looking in tissues and comparing, but at the molecular cellular level, that has not been done. Um, and functionally, there are also a few studies that have been done in the last few years that also show that some of the electrophysiological properties of human neurons are different, or at least of some of these neurons, they're different. Uh, but again, a lot of work needs to be done in this area because the main limitation has been lack of access to the cells. So, so a lot of the difference between humans and other mammals in terms of their brains is we have more neurons than than most other species. They're presumably physically connected to each other in in somewhat different ways. Do are there any like types of neurons or cells in the human brain that just aren't present in other mammals? So um, we're not necessarily the species with the most cortical neurons. Um, you know, there are other species that have, uh, you know, way more neurons, dolphins, for instance, like have more neurons in their cortex. Um, and uh, so it's it's not just about the, it's certainly the number of neurons will be important, but we should not just uh, presume that it's just a number of neurons. It's probably the way they're connected to each other, uh, which makes a big difference. And certainly there's been a, a you know, a, a, a search that has been going on for a long, long time to try to identify human-specific or primate-specific cell types. Um, at this point, you know, certainly there are a few cell types that have been presumed, like the classic uh, neurons, uh, pyramidal neurons in the frontal cortex called uh, phone economo neurons, which were described a, a long time ago. Uh, you know, they do seem to be enriched in some mammals, but not in others. Uh, but again, it's very difficult to know exactly what they do. And there's not a cell type that is only present in humans. Um, and so it may be that some of the cell types may have appeared multiple times during evolution. Um, um, but there, you know, there are other differences that are, that are arising. For instance, you know, the ratio between excitatory and inhibitory cells in the cortex seems to be different in primates. Um, and so, for instance, if in rodents, um, for every single um, um, you know, uh, pyramidal cell for every single, you know, there's like one uh, GABAergic inhibitor cell for every three pyramidal cells. So the ratio is like four, four to one, three to one. In humans, it seems that it may be one to one. So it almost as if we have hmm. more GABAergic cells in the cortex. And that's obviously very important. And that's one of the aspects that we can now study in a dish as well. Uh, because what is interesting about this interneurons is GABAergic cells, which essentially put a break on activity in the, and refine activity in the cerebral cortex is that they're not born in the cerebral cortex. Um, they are born actually in a deeper side of the forebrain. And then they have to migrate all the way up to the cortex and populate the cortex. And they do so over many, many, many months. Um, they start at like mid-gestation. And we now know that in humans, uh, this continues up to the second year of life. 
And so to study actually this process, um, six, seven years ago, we introduced an approach uh, to model migration of cells and connectivity that is called an assembloid. And so uh, in an assembloid, essentially you make these two brain regions separately. So you make a cortex and you make a ventral forebrain. And at one point, you just uh, essentially put them together uh, and you know see what happens. And it's it's interesting. I mean, it's always funny to look back of, of how we were developing this, but this was one of the goals of my lab when I was starting. And uh, uh, you know, we were um, you know we thought that once we're going to make these brain regions, it will be very difficult to fuse them that they won't stick to each other. So we started thinking of all kinds of like nano electrodes and biological glues that we will like put to uh, link the two together until somebody in the lab came and said, look, it's very simple. You take the two, you put them at the bottom of an Eppendorf tube, you leave them there overnight, the next day they're going to be fused. And not only they were fused, but you could literally see neurons starting to migrate and move. So this interneurons will start to jump because um, they're not crawling on the surface, but they do these peculiar jumps and move and populate uh, the dorsal forebrain. So again, seeing that, uh, a life also in the lab was incredibly uh, rewarding at that time. And of course, we've been using it now systematically to study disease. And in, uh, it's very well known that, um, that well, well, it's a very well-known hypothesis that in autism, interneurons have some sort of contribution. Um, there is a so-called excitation to inhibition hypothesis of autism that claims that an imbalance between excitation and inhibition is what, is what yields to disease. And that's based on the fact that many patients with autism have epilepsy, so they have seizures um, and, and a number of other observations. And so in a very recent study, which is still not, not uh, published, we've actually taken uh, a large group of genes that have been associated with autism and other neurodevelopmental diseases. There are about 600 and 400 of these are expressed in interneurons and try to map them to see which ones of those genes contribute to stages of interneuron development in human cells. So essentially doing a CRISPR screen uh, of stages of development and it allowed us to pinpoint that about like 40 genes or so uh, out of all this large group of autism genes that are um, interfering with interneuron generation. And some of them were certainly very surprising and unexpected uh, genes associated with disease that interfere with interneuron migration. But I think it speaks to the fact that we're finally getting at a time uh, in neuroscience where we have the ability to study neurodevelopmental processes in human cells and even start to map some of these disease genes or their contribution to the stages of development, which of course was uh, you know, difficult to imagine uh, 15, 20 years ago. So you have the ability to create neurons from stem cells you have the ability to grow them in a petri dish so that they are forming these things called organoids which are basically uh you know balls of cells that start to resemble at least in some ways different parts of the brain you mentioned these things called assembloids so basically you take two organoids you put them together and they start to grow together in ways that maybe mimic the way the brain normally develops in some ways you also did some recent experiments that got a lot of attention where you were actually transplanting some of these organoids into animals. Can you explain those experiments and, and why you did them and how you did them? So certainly with assemblies and organoids, we've been you know, able to model you know, aspects of developments that you know, we never thought that we could model before, including some early features of circuit formation. And you know, I, I didn't have the chance to mention this, but 
you know, for instance, we've we've tried we've built the entire cortical sp- uh, spinal tract pathway from parts, and so you know w- within an assembly, you know that cortical neurons project all the way to the spinal cord, connect with motor neurons, motor neurons control muscle contraction. So uh, in a paper that we published a few years ago, we were able to make a cerebral cortex, make a spinal cord-like organoid, and a muscle-like organoid, muscle, literally a ball of human muscles, and then connect them all three together. And although we don't know the rules for the cells to assemble with each other, you know, we found that a specific, specific types of cortical neurons will project all the way, find motor neurons, connect with them, and then motor neurons will go and uh, stimulate muscle contraction. And you can literally have a circuit uh, and stimulate the cortex optogenetically or electrically and trigger muscle contraction. And, and so although we've been getting more and more sophisticated in terms of the circuits that we can build, it was also clear that there are a number of limitations moving forward. Um, one of them, I mean, there are two in particular, I mean, there are many, but, but let me just focus on two major limitations that are perhaps more straightforward to articulate. One of them was that no matter how long we kept the cells in a dish, and despite the fact that they were undergoing this, you know, they were going through phases of, uh, you know, development as you would expect, the cells did not have the morphological and electrophysiological complexity that you would expect. And so even when you kept the cells for 250 days in a dish, they were still not at the size of a neuron in the actual human cortex at that stage. And if you were to patch them, you know, their resting memory potential would be like minus 50, but not minus 70, as you would expect. So it's like clear, you know, that something is missing, that although they know where they're in development, there is a, you know, a secondary program that is not being activated. So that was part of the motivation where we thought, well, maybe, you know, we can provide that in a living system, in a rat. If we were to transplant and integrate them, uh, maybe some of those features will be provided there. But the other uh, limitation, which, you know, of course, has been in the back of my mind for quite a while, is that in psychiatry, we define disorders uh, behaviorally, as I was mentioning before, right? There are no... um, there are no biomarkers for these conditions. There are no cellular phenotypes to define them. You essentially look at the behavior of this patient. So when you find a cellular defect for a form of autism in a dish, how do you know that that is truly part of the, you know, the core pathophysiology of that condition, right? How do you know that that phenotype is, for instance, not compensated by at the circuit level in a living animal? Right. So I think it also became much more clear that we will need better ways of assessing whether there are consequences for the cellular defects that we will see. And, you know, just to give an example, not that this will be much easier, but in neurodegeneration, it's, 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 it's slightly more straightforward <laughs> in the sense that we know and we've known for a very long time that in Parkinson's disease, you know, there's a loss of dopaminergic cells. What is the cellular phenotype? phenotype? Loss of dopaminergic cells. I mean, that was a seen in the 19th century, where you would do postmortem studies and you will look and see substantia nigra, which is supposed to be black, was gone. It was clear something was missing. But for autism, for schizophrenia, for intellectual disability, very often is not clear what we should be looking for. And if we were to find something, how do we know that that truly causes disease, that we should restore that phenotype in order to have a treatment? And 
And, and it's not that this needs to happen. This is not necessary, perhaps. But it, it was something that we should consider moving forward. And so that, that, there's, two, there's two aspects. How do we get the cells to mature farther and integrate into circuits? And could we have more complex uh, behavioral readouts and circuit readouts for the cells? And so that's why, you know, a number of years ago, and this, this, this project started in the lab, you know, almost seven years ago, we started thinking, could we actually put some of the cells in the rat brain, but make sure that they integrate into the circuitry of the rat so that they receive meaningful input? So we thought about putting them in the somatosensory cortex of the rat. This is the part of the brain that receives information for the whiskers on the opposite side. Now, there are critical periods for the development of these regions, and that's very well known in the rat, uh, that neurons in the thalamus that receives information from the whiskers will project into the cortex up to a point in development, and after that, they don't care anymore. So the critical period would close. So then one of our goals was to try to put human neurons before that critical period would close in the rat, which is after about a week that the rats are born. So essentially, we took immunocompromised rats, so rats that cannot reject human cells that would be transplanted, and then transplanted an intact organoid right into the somatosensory cortex of the rat and then closed and waited. And we discovered very early on that we could monitor the graph, the human organ that has been transplanted by MRI. So you could just run an MRI and you can see very clearly the border of the organoid. And that allowed us non-invasively to optimize the procedure, the surgical procedure, and get better and better at like how we run this experiment. And so we discovered that if you do that, the graph grows relatively large within a few months. And in the end, after about four to five months, it covers about, it represents about a third of a rat hemisphere on one side. Again, we're not removing the rat cortex. The rat cortex is still there, but the human cortex will grow within the rat cortex and ultimately be about one third of the, uh, of the volume. How big is it when you first put it in? Well, it's, it's relatively tiny. I mean, it's, you know, less than a half a millimeter or a half a millimeter to a millimeter when you put it in. But then it grows because it becomes vascularized, well, now we know. So very quickly, blood cells from the rat will grow in, and that's why it survives. Otherwise, it would not survive. Um, it's primarily human. Um, so it, you can almost think of, of a unit of human cortex into the rat brain, 99% of it being human. The 1% of the cells that are in there are either microglia from the rat that would come in and kind of like populate the graft, uh, or um, some of these endothelial cells, because again, the graft gets vascularized. And so one question was, well, does it, is it connected to the host in any way? And so we use a rabies virus to see what are the sources of input into the human graft. And we looked throughout the entire brain and found that there are two sources of input. One is the surrounding cortex. So the cortex of the rat on, you know, surrounding uh, the graft will project inside. But then the main source of input is actually from the thalamus on the same side, which again, conveys information from whiskers. And so that prompted us to ask, well, would they actually respond to sensory stimulation? And so to do that, we put a calcium indicator into the human graft before we transplanted, waited for the graft to grow about 250 days or so. And then you can open the skull and image live the activity of human neurons. And then you can puff air onto the whiskers of the rat, onto the opposite side, because the pathway is crossed. 
And that we have shown that indeed, if you puff air, human neurons would respond. There are responses that come right after that, uh, telling us that they have integrated, uh, you know, to a sufficient amount as to be able to receive input, which uh, again is primarily coming from the, you know, from from the rat pathway. They're not building an entire human pathway, just to make it clear. It's just the cortex that now starts to receive input from the thalamus. So just to make it super clear for people, so you're grafting one of these neural organoids composed of human neurons into a rat brain. So what exactly are you guys looking for and what is the what is the purpose of doing that? Is it to see if the neurons will integrate in a way that resembles uh, ordinary rat neurons that would be growing in the cortex that they are actually sort of finishing development, so to speak? No, the, the, the main goal was, um, uh, you know, cells that we were growing in a dish were certainly not sufficiently mature in terms of their morphology and electrophysiological uh, properties. So the question was, um, you know, they're grown outside of the human brain. If they were to be grown in an environment where they receive actually input, electrical input, would they actually develop much more, uh, you know, you know, develop better uh, features? And so the goal here was to integrate them into their right nervous system so that they can receive some of that sensory input early on. And, you know, there are classic experiments, classic experiments done you know, here at Stanford by Carla Schatz uh, years ago, where, you know, it was very clearly shown that if neurons in development do not receive input at the right time, you know, they won't mature, they won't develop, they won't develop the connectivity. And so, of course, in the dish, they would be unable to. So one question was, well, maybe they're not developing because they're not receiving you know, the right sensory input or the right input at the right time. And, you know, just to make it clear, the integration with the rat brain is limited in many ways because the rat develops much faster than the human. We've discovered that even when we put human cells into the rat, they will still develop at their own pace. And so you can look at almost like, you can almost look as a, at a competition, the rat, you know, finishes corticogenesis in a couple of weeks, it's done the human will take much, much longer. So the integration cannot be perfect. Um, and I think this also speaks to some of the ethical aspects. Uh, the integration cannot be uh, perfect, but we wanted to see, could we get enough integration so that human neurons would receive input and perhaps mature much more? And indeed that is the case because you can take the graft out uh, after it has been there for 250 days. And when you look at neurons, now they're about six times larger uh, in size than they were before. The resting member potential, it's much closer to minus 70. So that tells us that there are some factors inside the rat brain that are helping the cells, the human cells to mature uh, you know, farther in development. And in fact, we've shown that this helps us already to model disease. Um, you know, in uh, again, in a genetic form of disease, we've shown even in this paper that we were unable to, to identify differences in a dish, no matter how long we kept the cells, unless you were to put them in vivo and the cells will grow much larger. And then you would start seeing the differences between patients and controls. So I think this tells us that there will be, you know, a certain group of phenotypes or disease related processes that we may only uncover if we embed the cells into circuits, which again is not surprising, um, right? It, it, it's clear that that would be the case, but it, um, it was interesting to actually observe it firsthand. So 
you know, when you do these transplantation experiments using these organoids, all the techniques that you've been talking about, do you see these primarily as tools to understand how development naturally unfolds and to figure out the pathophysiology of different diseases, like what goes wrong in development to give you something like Timothy syndrome or, or another developmental disorder? Or do you see a future where some of these tools are are actually used themselves in a clinical setting? Like, for example, could you imagine doing human to human grafting in the future to, to integrate uh, healthy, healthy neurons and healthy circuitry into someone that has some kind of developmental defect? Well, I think at this point, the main utility of this platform is to model disease and to test drugs, you know, because, um, you know, think about today, if, you know, first of all, to model diseases I was mentioning, but also think about like drug development, right? Let's say you have a potential therapeutic for a disease, uh, right? What, what do you do next uh, with it? Like if you want to move it towards the clinic, you want to test it into an animal model. And sure, you can do that. But sometimes some of these animal models for disease don't recapitulate the disease, and so you still want to test it in an in vivo setting. You want to make sure that it actually works. So your, your, your best next choice is actually to use a primate, right? A primate model, which again is limiting for many, many reasons. Well, the alternative with this method is that you can actually use uh, this model where you inject the drug of interest or the therapy of interest into the animal, but you look at the effect on human cells that have been transplanted into that, that, that cortex. And we still don't have the ability to look at very complicated behavioral readouts, and I'll tell you what we've done so far about that. But it it shows that this is, and we've already shown that actually, we have one uh, conditions that we've been studying where we've done exactly that. We had a promising uh, therapy that had been working throughout like all the in vitro assays and you wonder what is next? You know, what else should you do before you move into patients? And you wanna do as much due diligence as you can to show that this works into an in vivo setting. You know how many, you know, how many, you know, rescues that are in vitro that never translate in vivo, right? As people say, in vivo veritas, you know, ultimately, you know, truth uh, is in an in vivo setting and especially for circuits of disease. And that's exactly one of the applications of this uh, platform that you can just test drugs. I see. Now, in terms of cell transplantation, you know, uh, I'm not sure whether that's the immediate application because as I was mentioning before, if you transplant the cells at much later stages of development, integration is not ideal. You know, the host brain is no longer permissive. And so it will not make as many conditions, as many connections. So you wonder if you were to transplant cells after a stroke, you know, how much integration would you actually be able to get? I think if, as as we're getting better and better at understanding how the cells get integrated, perhaps we're gonna be able to play with some of these programs and open briefly periods of, but that I think it's 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 a longer uh, effort that will take many years to get there. I see. So so doing these sort of grafting and, and transplantation experiments, one of the things, one of the applications here is that it will allow scientists to sort of study the effects of drugs or interventions that are meant to be uh, used ultimately in humans in human cells, even though it's in an animal model. So it's sort of the idea would be that it's going to tell you more than just putting it in the animal model all by itself, uh, but you could do this sort of faster and more rigorously than you could um, in, in actual human beings. Exactly. Yeah. And so, what are um, you know what are some of the the major questions that your lab and similar labs are working on right now? What what are some of the big questions in develop brain development that you think we're going to start to learn some answers to in the coming years? 
Well, uh, you know, building up on the discussion now about transplantation, you know, one fundamental question is like, why are the cells maturing much more in vivo? Yeah, you know, these are not trivial experiments to do. It requires hundreds of days, a lot of expertise. Uh, and while I'm sure that many labs will be able to do this, I don't think it will be a platform that hundreds or thousands of labs will be able to, uh, to apply just because of the expertise and the timing. So what we're trying to do now is to understand what are the reasons and the programs that underlie this fast maturation and then try to mimic it, um, you know, in an in vitro setting to try to obtain similarly mature neurons morphologically and functionally, but in an in vitro setting. I think that that is, and that I think it's a fundamental question. How is that happening? How do cells mature? And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the genes that regulate that are probably disease genes, because very often we see this maturation effect in many of these conditions. So it's very likely that the same genes that control this are probably also causing disease uh, at times. And so I think that is one aspect. But you know, going back to the discussion about the behavioral readouts of these conditions, I think it's worth keeping in mind that these psychiatric disorders are behavioral conditions and they work primarily at the level of circuits. So we're going to need to be more sophisticated in how we're reading the effect of the cells. And in this paper, we started doing some experiments in this direction, trying to see whether human cells participate to the can participate to the behavior of the rat? Could we obtain a behavioral readout? And what we've done is we've essentially put uh, general rhodopsin, um, which as you may know, a, a tool developed, a pioneer by my colleague here at Stanford, Carl Dyseroth, uh, where you can control the activity of neurons with blue, with blue light. And so essentially we put general rhodopsin into human neurons uh, and then transplanted them waited for you know 150 days or so, implanted an optic fiber that allows us to deliver blue light to the cells, and then train the rats in a reward conditioning task. Essentially, we were teaching them to associate stimulation of human neurons with delivery of, of a reward, in this case, receiving water. And we've shown that if you train the rats, you know, after about a couple of weeks, um, you can just, you know, stimulate human neurons and rats will go and seek the reward, in this case, water. Telling us that, that they were able to actually associate human neurons participate to that circuit. But now just imagine if you were to have, uh, you know, two rats, one carrying cells from patients with a specific disease and others with the control. Would we be able from a behavioral task like the one that I described right now to distinguish which one carries patient cells and which one carries control cells, right? To almost... You know, you can look at almost like in this case at the animal as an avatar for the human cells as a readout, as a complicated, as a complicated readout for the defect in human cells. And of course, then could you administer a drug and restore it so you don't see that difference anymore? I, I think see. that's one of the promises for this as as we're dealing with ever more complex psychiatric disorders, right? Because there are disorders that are more complex than others that are forms of intellectual disability that are caused by microcephaly, where neurons are simply not there. Uh, you know, uh, and that is relatively, you know, I mean, straightforward to understand. But schizophrenia and other conditions are, are not that straightforward. We, you know, they're not major cell types missing from the brain. Uh, it's clear that the defects are probably in the way the cells are communicating with each other. And so we need to build more complicated readouts for that. I and see. So, so the idea would be you you literally graft two different types of neural tissue into something like a rodent 
And, you know, one would be a control tissue and there's nothing wrong with it. One would be something like, you know, maybe the neurons that you, that you made from the, the patients with, uh, Timothy syndrome, and they've got uh, a defect in a calcium channel. You allow them to exactly. integrate into the mature brain of something like a rat. And then you could actually look at not only how those cells integrate into the brain, but if there are behavioral readouts that you can start to detect that point to something being wrong. In other words, that the, the rat behavior is sort of recapitulating some kind of human behavior that you know goes wrong in, in some of these disorders. You can then go in if that's true, and actually functionally characterize, hopefully, exactly what's wrong with the cells. Exactly. That, that's sort of like the promise. It, there's going to be a lot of work to get to that point. Uh, but I, I, I think this type of work is justifiable considering, you know, the immense burden that psychiatric disorders bring today. You know, like almost one in five individuals suffers from a psychiatric disease. Most of these conditions um, are, are chronic conditions, lifelong, lifelong conditions for which we essentially have no cures. I mean, we have a number of classes of drugs that alleviate some of the symptoms, but to a large extent, these disorders are still mysterious and uncurable. And, uh, you know, if we think that psychiatric disorders are, you know, uniquely human, and they may be or they may not be, but certainly if we think of them as related to some of the unique features of the human brain, it becomes very clear that we need models that mimic more closely the human brain. And certainly the more human the models are, the more uncomfortable we feel also about, you know, the meaning of those models and, uh, you know, their properties and so on and so forth. And, and that's where some of the ethical, moral, legal implications of this type of work arise, which you know, we've been very sensitive to and very actively involved in and proactively involved in outlining what are some of the, you know, what are some of this uh, ethical, moral and legal, uh, uh, you know, features of this type of work. Yeah. And, and what do you think um, some of those features are, um, or, or to put it a slightly different way, uh, some of your recent research got a lot of attention in the press and on social media and stuff, and you know, especially to non-experts sort of reacting to this, um, you know, and seeing like, oh, we're you know, people are grafting human brain cells into rat brains. It, it starts to really sound like science fiction type stuff. How, how has that whole process been for you? And what are some of the biggest sort of misunderstandings and things that you've seen out there in terms of uh, public reaction to some of this work? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we've been thinking about this for a long time, and I, I think it's very important to know that these experiments are not done, and then we look at them and we think, oh, what have we done? That's not how it works. Uh, uh, you know, we've been both working with the with the larger community of ethicists and philosophers, uh, actually, who are thinking deeply about this as the experiments are ongoing. And even here at Stanford, I have colleagues, uh, even part of the Stanford Brain Organogenesis program who are like, you know, thinking at every single step, they see this experiment and we think carefully about what the next steps are. Uh, and uh, in general, you know, there are at least like three, I guess, categories of issues that one could uh, think about. Um, so one of them has to do with the animal um, and the welfare of the animal. You know, is the animal suffering because of this transplantation? Um, and, um, you know, that we've looked very carefully from the beginning because they have a large graft. And so we've looked at, uh, you know, do they have epileptic seizures? Are they under any pain? And, the, you know, to the extent that we've seen, we have not seen that. And another, you know, issue related to this is, are there any augmentation of like features in this animal, right? Like any changes? Uh, and to be honest, 
we were not thinking that the rat, you know, will just, you know, have any, you know, novel features to improve their performance. We were more, more afraid that uh, they will be, you know, will perform worse in some of these tasks. So we ran a battery of cognitive, uh, you know, attention, uh, anxiety tests and found no differences between rats that were transplanted and rats that were not transplanted. And of course, we continue to do that for all the experiments that we uh, perform. Uh, but again, uh, you know, just to make an analogy, which may not be a, a, an analogy, uh, a perfect analogy, but you know, if you, if you take a car, you take a Prius or whatever you want, and then you change a part of it uh, by taking um, you know, whatever you want out of a Ferrari, you know, the Prius will not become a Ferrari by just changing a piece in the entire car, right? So there's, um, you know, we're not humanizing. And that's that's one of the things that we prefer not to refer. The term humanization is not a very good term to describe this type of work. Uh, but we're just putting a few million cells um, uh, into this uh, rats in order to mature them and to study the disease. So one aspect has to do with like the rat and then another has to do with the cells, the human cells, you know, where the human cells um, consented appropriately, like those who donated the cells where they aware of the fact that, be, that the cells would be transplanted into an animal. And in general, you know, the consents that we use specify that uh, you know the cells will be transformed into other cells and they would be transplanted into animals. And the third aspect has to do with the perception. How is the research presented? Um, this can quickly capture people's imagination, right? And so one has to be very careful what type of words we use to even describe this type of work, right? Uh, and, and so that clarity, uh, of, clarity of the message is essential. Is essential. Uh, uh, to explaining the work. And so that's why we put a lot of effort into explaining uh, the work carefully to the public as well and understand exactly what has been done before there would be any exaggerations. Are there any final things that you want to reiterate or let people know about your work and, and what you've been researching? I think we've covered a lot of ground, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we covered a lot. Um, thank you very much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. This is uh, very interesting research. Uh, for those listening, uh, I did a, a previous episode with Carl Dyseroth, who, who we mentioned earlier. So if you're interested in optogenetics and understanding that technology and how neuroscientists use it in a little bit more detail, check out that episode. Um, we've done a number of episodes about brain development with a variety of people, but but obviously this episode is in, in that cluster of... Uh, of conversations. Um, Sergio Pashka, thank you very much for your time. This has uh, been fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about AminoCo is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations and 
engineered for different purposes. And my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts. And I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto-friendly, soy-free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, so they are compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com mind. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying AminoCo's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising, and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see. So check out aminoco.com mind and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off.